0: Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined today by Hui Huynh of Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. Hey. And Guy Dunlap of Guy's Woodshop. Sean, how are you this evening? I'm great. How are you? Good. How about you, Hui? How are you doing? I'm doing great. Good. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also want to thank our new patrons to our Patreon campaign, Thomas Stanley and Dominic Blasco. Thank you for listening and for supporting the show. And if you'd like to support the show, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the costs of bringing this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com slash life if you'd like to show your support. So let's dive right into it. What do you got for us? Okay, this
1: is actually from Jonathan Scott of Jonathan Scott Woodworks. He had already brought in a question about the riser blocks, and they look like they're a success, so congratulations, Jonathan. I finished up the installation of the riser block on my paramatic bandsaw, and after quite a bit of time getting everything tweaked and dialed for regular use with the standard blade, I want to address my fence situation before attempting resawing with my 3-8-inch wood slicer blade. Good choice. What fences, styles of fences do you guys prefer for resawing? The one that came with the saw is quite short. And so I'm thinking something that is tall but switchable to shorter for smaller pieces. So let's go ahead and address that first question because he has a couple of questions here. He talks about like a couple of aftermarket ones, but let's just talk about what kind of resaw fence we're each running. I'm just using the standard resaw fence that came with my bandsaw, which has the ability to switch between a small or a short fence and a tall fence. And I think that's a really, really helpful thing. It's just a piece of alu- extruded aluminum that you could flip from its side. Before that, I was using just a short fence and I was using the micro jig dovetail clamp with a piece of tall plywood clamped to my actual fence.
0: Yeah. And that's, that's what I use as well, uh, actually on my Porter cable. Um, it didn't come with a fence. So what I ended up doing is buying the Craig fence to, uh, to put on the, to retrofit on the bandsaw. Now, before mm-hmm. that I would just clamp, you know, I made my own L-shaped fence out of plywood and screws and, and clamped it to the table. Uh, but now I have the Craig fence and anything that's taller than seven or eight inches, I would typically use the micro jig dovetail clamps as well with a, mm-hmm. with an auxiliary fence that I would clamp onto that. And I want to also say, uh, I was following his, uh, Instagram stories about installing the riser block. And he mentioned that the Powermatic riser block had zero slop. So I know we experienced some slop when we were installing the riser block on ours. So just a, an FYI on that. Apparently Powermatic got it right on that guy. What are you, what are you working with over there?
2: I have a the, on my Power Mac. It's got the same thing that that you guys were talking about before, where it can go horizontal or vertical at the extruded aluminum. Typically, when I'm doing resawing, I've got it in the horizontal mode because I mm-hmm. I like having the, the the fence using that as a reference to the blade, if that makes sense. Right. There's also an option on mine. It came with one of those um, resaw bars, which is just a round piece of. Actually, this thing weighs about five pounds. It's a just a metal piece that I can put on the fence, and then you guide the blade through, and it gives you the ability to go left or right based on the, the drift of the saw blade. Mm. I don't have any drift on my saw blade, so I don't see the need for that.
1: I don't have any drift on my saw blade either, so I don't see the... Uh, you're talking about that D-shaped bump out at the center of yeah. the F-
2: I know, a lot, I've, I know a lot of people that do that. They they draw a line on the whole board mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. The, the, they use the bar as a pivot point and they just feed it through and it gives them the ability to move the board depending on how the, the, the blade reacts. And I've got my saw set up so I don't get really a lot of drift and it really doesn't matter. So I just use the fence and its tall configuration and just use that as a reference and
1: if you don't have a tall fence, you can always just clamp an auxiliary fence to it, right? Yep. Uh, Sean, do you have any drift? Do you, have you ever used that bump out, D-shaped bump on the center of the
0: resaw blade or resaw fence? The D-shaped Humpty Dump? Humpty Dump. <laughs> <laughs> Humpty Dumpty Bump. The Craig fence did come with the optional Humpty Bump. <laughs> um, but to be honest with you, I spent a lot of time dialing in the saw as best I could with the best its the the best of its abilities, and I just never utilized that D shaped attachment. I've always just referenced the fence and and just fed the the board through without using the the D shaped. Now I have also seen some people resaw with using a push pad on both sides of the board and not even using a fence at all. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. I just I just dial in the bandsaw and just use the fence. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So no special accessory there. Do you use any sort of featherboard accessory? And what do you use? Yeah, I was going to say, I can't. (laughs) Oh, Guy, can you? What's that? Uh, So you don't use any resaw fence, but what kind of featherboard do you use? I used to
2: use a uh, Miles Craft double featherboard, and it was about three inches tall. Mm -hmm. I got rid of that, and I got the Feather Pro from Bow Products. Mm Mm-hmm theirs because I really liked it and they had a double one and it was about three inches tall mm-hmm. and now I've got their the feather but it's bow products feather pro something and yeah it like, looks
1: like a wiper blade
2: yeah it's it's freaking awesome yeah I love that thing I
1: really like that for resaw
2: yeah I typically only use the the feather board on a resaw if I'm above about six inches right most of the time I'm just
0: using uh
2: my push block you know, with the the grippy pad on the bottom, and pushing it through that way,
0: Sean. That's what you do, right? Yep, I use the micro jig, and since it has the ninety degree side, I just flip it on its side and use the uh, the pad to push the piece through and pushing it up against the fence, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. so it's all registered. Works great. Yeah.
2: You use a you use a featherboard, Sean,
1: or a qui? I use a featherboard. I use the same the same featherboard that you have, the one that looks like a wiper blade. It's really really nice. Uh, but before that, I was just using a good fence. My bandsaw came with a good fence, and I was using a push block. That was it. Yeah.
2: You also asked about aftermarket fences. I know, Sean, you've used the Craig.
1: I've used the Craig as well.
2: So did I. I like the Craig.
1: Yeah, I have nothing bad to say about the. Cra- I thought it was great.
2: Yeah, it's got the T track in the front of it, and mm-hmm. if it, if I needed something taller than that, I had a mm-hmm. board with you know a couple screws and some T nuts. And I just attach it to the front of it and it was fine. It worked really well. I really liked that Craig one.
1: Yeah. The fence is really solid on it. It's a good aftermarket fence. If you need to get an yeah. aftermarket option, it's a good option for sure. Yeah, And then plus it has the micro adjust capability. Yep. That's yep. cool. Yep. I think we've answered Jonathan's question and I think the next person up is Guy. Woohoo. So I'm going to
2: answer another question from my buddy, Eric, from the Poplar shop. Nice. Yeah, and this is a good question. Worst injury you've suffered from the shop? Well, <laughs> uh, I've actually only had two different injuries. And I say one of the injuries, it's happened multiple times, but not that many. You know, that's kickback. I think we've all experienced kickback. And I don't think we're going to talk about kickback, correct?
1: No, no, we're not going to okay. talk about kickback. we I've experienced it, but it's never been devastating, of course.
2: Yeah, it just leaves a a bruise yeah. um, and hurts like yeah. I'll get out. Now, what do you uh, mean we're but, not
0: going to talk about kickback? Like what causes it or?
2: As our worst injury suffered from the shop.
0: Um, mine is kickback.
2: Okay. Well, then you're the exception to the rule, but I'm on board <laughs> right now. So I'm going to talk about my worst injury.
1: Okay. Other than
2: that, <laughs> the kickback <laughs> I've suffered several times. I ran my finger into a router bit.
1: Yeah. I remember that. It was, a, it
2: was a quarter inch spiral bit. I don't know if I was up cut or down cut. Yeah. I was doing something stupid. I was doing a climb cut. So I was going in reverse and I didn't have the board very secure. And it went zip right out of my hands. Yeah. And uh, I ran my index finger through the through the blade. And it's like one of those things where, you know, it happened and I looked at it. And I just started laughing. It didn't, it, it hurt, but it didn't hurt. I was just too busy laughing at myself. That was probably the worst one. I, th- I And I do have another good one too. Share it. I was moving a board, a piece of rough cut ash, and I was moving around in my, my vertical rack that I have. I forgot about this one. This is a good one too. And I was moving it around and it shifted and it slid down and it put a splinter that was probably about uh-huh. three or four inches long and it was thick. I mean, uh. you know, maybe like three sixteenths to a quarter inch at its widest point. And it went right through the, the webbing between my thumb and my my index finger. Oh. You know that part right there? Yeah. And it went all the way through in a really <laughs> deep part. And, I, and again, I started laughing. So I went in the house and my wife was a nurse. I said, Judy, can you pull this thing out? And she goes, yeah, let me try. And oh. she started pulling on it, it wouldn't come out. Oh. oh my God. So we had to go to the hospital <laughs> and it was so funny because they, they gave me a shot that anesthetized my whole hand and the doctor pulled out a pair of cobalt, uh, needle nose pliers. <laughs> 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 and that's what he pulled. That's what he pulled it out with.
1: Oh, that was funny. pretty
2: funny. Uh, what about you? Hui?
1: Oh, it's so stupid. Oh my goodness. I had taken out the straight knife cutter head in my planer and I was just admiring how sharp the knives were. It's like, man, those are so sharp. And I hadn't cut myself. I was just like, wow, it's amazing though that I hadn't cut myself. And just the thought of it, like, I don't know what happened, but I lost track for some reason of where my finger was while I was just holding each side of the cutter head and my hand slipped. And my finger, my thumb, just got sliced straight up from the cutter head knife, and I was just bleeding all over the place. And Jeff got stitches. No, I didn't. Thankfully, it wasn't deep enough to need stitches, but it was—it was just so much blood uh, because it was such a long cut, and so that was probably the worst. But I've experienced kickback too, but never to the level of anything that was. Dangerous. I mean, small pieces, you know, on the table saw sled. I mean, that's kind of what the table saw sleds for, right? Yeah. No, no big deal in terms of dangerous kickback, but you know, it's probably because I'm aware of what kickback is and you know, try to prevent
0: it from happening in the first place.
2: As, as far as cuts go, do you guys keep? Have you guys ever squirted CA glue into a cut?
0: I have not. I've been. <laughs> I've thought about it but I've been uh, I've chickened out. I
2: I I had read once. and I think we talked about this before that CA glue was actually developed by the army yeah. in Vietnam
1: to close wounds up. I've heard that too. I I wouldn't be a bit surprised though because I think it's actually something similar to our conventional super glue is actually Used to close wounds and
2: yeah it's called dermabond or permabond or dermabond or something like that and it's a medical grade stuff and again my wife is a nurse so i have some of it i keep it in the shop Mm. it's like every time i do a lot of if i'm using my chisels a lot Mm -hmm. i tend to cut my fingers quite a bit from the edge of the chisels yes um
1: dermabond i got to get some dermabond
2: yeah, they'll, they'll sell it at a medical supply store, mm-hmm. and I just squirt some of that in there. I don't need a band aid or anything, and it's fine. But it's it's just a a medical grade, so it's sterilized. I think mm-hmm. that's the only difference. But Sean, what's your worst kickback story or your worst injury?
0: There's a couple of things I want to talk about. The first one is the kickback. Again, both of these were when I was a greenhorn. I guess I'm no longer that, but
1: well, even if you weren't, it's still it still happens.
0: Oh yeah. But the board, let let me set this up. The board was five and a half inches wide, probably 24 inches long. I was resawing it on the table saw. I go to pass it through once and then you, of course you rotate it 180 end for end and then start to do it again. I don't know what happened if I looked away or if it pinched the the blade or or what, but it kicked back, slammed into my stomach, left a really nice bruise uh, and hurt for, for a few days. Uh, and the second one, the saw
2: stop didn't prevent that.
0: I didn't have a saw stop at the time. Oh, would the saw stop have prevented that? Uh, no, I don't think they have a, an anti <laughs> kickback feature. Yeah. yeah.
2: No, just checking. Just <laughs>
0: checking. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. Yeah. But the second thing was the, uh, I didn't get injured very, very luckily, but I'm going to preface this by saying that this is when I very first got a router table. So it's a router related almost injury but i was you know those little brass setup blocks that you use to set the height of a bit yep Mm -hmm. so i was bending over using that to uh set the the height to a quarter of an inch give or take and i left it next to the bit and i turned the router on and i was still eye level with the router with the bit and thankfully it went the opposite way yeah and that right there was a wake up call. I mean, I don't even go near the router table without all of my PPE and push pads. And I mean, everything, it was a wake up call, but didn't get injured thankfully. And I've since learned use the bandsaw for resawing and, and be careful with the router table. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Shop safety is a, is a big thing and we all talk about it and we try to practice it as much as we, we can, you know, I see things on YouTube all the time. About shop safety, and even though I think I know a lot about shop safety, those are videos I always watch, even if it's rehashed stuff. Mainly because I just want to, I just want to hear it again, the wrong way to do things.
0: Yeah, if that makes sense. Do you guys keep a first aid kit and and, and whatnot in your shop? Yes. Yes. Always. So.
2: I guess that's the end of that question. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> I think Sean you're 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 on uh, on board now. All
0: right. This one's from Mark. Hey guys, love the podcast. If you've already addressed it, please direct me back to the episode. But otherwise, pre-finish, I hear of see people doing it but don't understand. Do you pre-finish to get the color you want, then finish for the durability or a level of gloss? What combination of products work? I think we've talked about this before, but we primarily, or at least I do pre-finish because it's going to save time, make it easier on yourself. Because I know for one, I've had multiple issues on, let's say for finishing something like a bookcase where I'm applying finish on the corners, like where a shelf meets the wall and I have runs and whatnot. So you're, you're primarily going to pre-finish just because it's you have access to the panels that you're currently working on. Um, so, And this all starts for me during the designing phase. I'm thinking... You know, how can I get a head start on the finish? What am I going to use? What can I pre-finish? Is it a panel? Uh, I'm going to pre-finish that in case it expands and contracts. It, you know, it, it's just going to make your life easier uh, if you can pre-finish. It's not necessarily have anything to do with with the color you want or the level of gloss. It's just allowing you to get a head start on your finishing uh, routine and, and pre-finishing while stuff is easy to access. And Hui, I know you, uh, you, you like to pre-finish often.
1: Yeah. Another reason is also to keep the joint relatively clean or you want to make sure you keep the joint relatively clean when you pre-finish. So I use a little bit of blue painter's tape over the tenon uh, so that I don't get finish on the tenon. So I get a good glue joint. That's just something that I want to mention, but I do pre-finish as well. And I do it for the same reasons you do, Sean. Guy?
2: Yeah. Um, I guess a, a question I'm going to ask both of you guys. Do, do you Let's say you're going to do an oil finish, like an armor seal. Do you do like three coats of of that? Or do you just put a coat of it on, then go ahead and build it, and then put more on later?
1: If I'm using armor seal, I really don't contend with or try to uh, pre-finish because it's a wipe-on varnish. I can wipe it off. I don't get those runs the same way I do.
2: Well, that was just an example. So let's say you're going to use something else, like shellac. Do you do all the finish and then assemble, or do you just do like one coat, one or two coats, and then put it together and then put another coat on afterwards?
0: Yeah, yeah, I'll do that. For me, if it if it's a panel, I'm probably going to take it at least to get a build up of the sheen that I want to be the final sheen before maybe I do any buffing. And you, because again, if it expands or contracts, rather, you're going to see see some of that differences. Um, so if it's a panel, I'll try to get it three coats, maybe to start to build up that sheen, uh, just because if I put one on it and it's pretty much a flat finish and it yeah. contracts, you're going to see that difference in sheen. So I'll try to build it up. But as far as everything else, you know, three coats, uh, seems pretty, pretty standard for what I do. Um, I'm not really going to take it all the way, but I'm going to get it pretty close. I guess my goal, as far as, 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 the sheen is concerned, I definitely see the benefit in that, uh, being a panel for sure. For me, it really
2: depends on the project and what I'm putting on it. So let's say it's a small, like a wall cabinet. i picked that out just because I'm looking at one right now. I'm typically going to use shellac on that, mainly because it's not going to see a lot of abuse and it's a, it's a good finish. So I'll pre-finish the whole thing and I'll go three, four, five coats on it and do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And... Don't even worry about finishing afterwards. If I'm doing an oil based finish, I may do one or two coats. But you're right, Sean, since it is oil based, most of the time I'm using a wiping poly or a, a wiping varnish. I really, you really don't have to worry about runs and stuff that much because you're you're putting it on and you're wiping it off. Right. Um,
0: now you say when you apply an oil finish, say like armor Seal, do you always wipe on and then wipe back off?
2: Yeah. It depends on what it is. If it's a wiping varnish or a wiping poly, yes, because that's okay. what it's designed to do.
1: Yeah, I wipe it off. Yep,
0: that's interesting. Yeah. I guess there's two trains of thought. I mean, some people wipe it on with the with the cloth and leave it on, whereas some people I can see wiping it on with the foam brush, which puts it on pretty heavy, and then wiping it off. I tend to wipe on and leave it on with the cloth.
2: Well, the, the only time I really leave a, a, a finish on is when I'm using a water based poly.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll use a
2: foam brush. That's the only time I use a foam brush. And I'll 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 put that on because it levels itself really nice. Mark's also asking a question here about, you know, all products that adhere to an oil, for instance. <clears throat> a good pre-finish to put on anything is shellac because shellac will stick to anything and anything
1: will stick to shellac. And we say it all the time. <laughs> yep. It's, it's kind of like one.
2: high glue. It's yep. the same thing. Mm-hmm that's a really good thing to do a pre-finish with and he's talking about you you pre-finish to get a color you want so that that really comes down to what kind of color you're looking for so Mm -hmm. for example I, i recently built a bookcase where the sides were plywood but the face frame was solid cherry and when i put it together there was a big difference in the color between the two so, I actually ended up putting garnet shellac, garnet shellac on everything. And I did some test samples, stuff like that, so I could get the color right. right. But garnet shellac evened out the color. So, that was important.
1: And that's in the sealer. I mean, that's what yeah. shellac is it's a sealer.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: How do you handle pre finishing for um, if you're spraying? Do you handle that any different? Since you, if it's a hard to reach area, you may have a little advantage with spraying it versus wiping it maybe for an even coat. I still, you
2: know, if I'm going to pre-finish, even if I'm spraying, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to have to deal with corners. Yeah. 90 degree corners. Right. Even when you're spraying, you got to really go, you know, almost a dry spray if you're not, if you're worried about getting that stuff in the corners. So I really don't want to do that. I like to put a nice wet coat down or whatever okay. I'm using. Most of the time when I'm spraying, 99% of the time when I'm spraying, I'm spraying shellac. And you want to keep it wet because I'm still using a pound and a half cut and it dries really quick. So I lay down a pretty good coat of it. Okay. I don't I don't put a really light mist
1: on it.
0: All right. Well, we, you're up next. What do you got for us? So
1: this question is from Peter Downing. My hobby has been transitioning lately towards commissions, and I find myself considering things like time and costs more than when making gifts or just for myself. Well, good, Peter, you should be. Uh, I wonder how you make decisions about things like joinery, for example, uh, mortise and tenon versus a pocket screw or hand cut versus machine cut. The materials and the finish, so things like shellac versus poly. So let's go ahead and uh, let's answer these couple of questions first because he actually asks a couple. But uh, if we tackle them uh, separately, I think it'll flow better. So when I think of commissioned work, I think of mortise and tenon. I just think of like the easiest thing to accomplish the task, but that is still structurally sound and still looks good. And a lot of times if I'm doing things for speed, I would probably use something like the Festool domino. Guy, what do you think? Would you use something like more complex than that, or or more refined, yeah. or unless
2: unless unless I've talked to the customer and schooled them in the the fine joinery, uh, which <laughs> doesn't really happen because they it just goes in one ear and out the other. They don't really care about that stuff, to be honest with you. Right. Um, when you start talking about that stuff, time is money. If you're doing a, a commission. That's where the, the domino really shines. He's talking about like a pocket screw. I would never use a pocket screw for joinery <laughs> in a
1: commission piece. Would you use it for kickers or drawer yeah, slides? It, yeah.
2: It really it really depends. It really depends. When we're talking about mortise and tenon or a domino or pocket screw, mm-hmm. I'm not going to use
1: pocket screws in a situation like that.
2: Yeah. So, um, to me, a, a domino
1: is a mortise and tenon. It seems it to me too.
2: Yeah. So if you even if you school the customer on what a mortise and tenon is, you're using dominoes. That is a mortise and tenon. It's a loose tenon, but it's still a mortise and tenon.
1: What about drawers? Would you use hand cut versus machine cut, and what is there a difference? Or well, you I don't.
2: I don't really do hand cut dovetails, so it would be machine cut.
1: Yeah. If i had to do a bunch of them i'd do machine cut <laughs>
2: yeah. what about you sean
0: yeah i, I agree the, the domino would be the way to go if you don't have one save those commissions <laughs> yeah. the money from that and then buy one because it's if you're going to get into that it's all about saving time as right. far as doing stuff like hand cut dovetails the only way that i would do that not even hand cut actually let me back up doing dovetails would be if someone wanted me to make a copy of my dovetail blanket chest and even then If that were the case, I would probably use a a dovetail jig, like a router-based, a a machine cut dovetail jig, probably pick up a lead jig or something like that, and just save a lot of time, a lot of time, unless they want to pay for it, which I doubt that you could talk them into that, but that's pretty much my take on that.
1: What about materials and finish? Do they play a part in pricing out commissions? Of course. Yeah, for me of course. <laughs> yeah. If they want it made out
2: of sawn walnut, that stuff's really expensive.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure.
2: As compared to making
0: it out of, you know, maple. Right. It's just cheap. Speaking of of uh materials, let me ask both of you guys a question. I know the goal is to make money at the end. Mm-hmm. What do you what do you have like your own preferences on? Okay, I'm willing to buy if it's a painted project, I'm going to buy plywood. But I'm not going to go to the big box store to buy the cheapest stuff. I mean, you still have have your own uh, preferences as far as that goes. What is wh- what are you normally? What grade of plywood is the bare minimum that you're going to use? Ooh, uh, probably like the Chinese birch
1: is probably the lowest grade, which is pretty low grade in terms of plywood. Are you talking about like painting it?
0: Yeah, I'm talking like a cabinetry project. I mean, I guess what I'm saying is. Even though the goal is to make money, you still have standards on the materials that you're going to buy. You're not going to buy crappy plywood. You still have standards because you know he's sure. talking about materials and whatnot. I was just curious what what is your go to for like a painted pro- cabinet project or something like that.
2: If it's, if it's painted, I, I I would use something like a D a D face with a like a D two maple ply. Yeah, maple ply. And that's and you can get that at most home stores. You may have to pick through the pile a little bit, but if it's going to be stain grade or just finished, where I'm not going to paint it, I'm usually getting like a B one or a, a B two, depends on if the inside's going to be seen or not. Right, that makes sense. Sometimes I'll get an A face, and you can't get that
1: stuff at the home store. You have to go to a, a supplier for that. Yeah, it's a different price. It's different quality though.
2: Yeah, it really depends on the project and what the customer's expectations are. I still have standards. I mean, if somebody asked me to make uh, something out of construction-grade plywood and construction-grade lumber, I don't want any part of that.
0: Yeah, it's unpredictable.
2: Yeah, I'm just not going to do
0: it. And as far as finish is concerned, you're going to want to use something that applies quickly, easily, and allows you to move on to the next coat. Um, So what what do you... What are you saying? Wipe on poly for the most part, unless you're going to spray something. No,
2: if I, if I'm doing a commission and I want to get it done fast, using an oil-based finish for me is very difficult because Mm -hmm. once I put a coat of oil on it, I'm done for the day. I can't do anything in my shop because of the dust, because it's got to take 24 hours to dry for the next coat.
1: Mm -hmm.
2: So, the last couple projects I've done on commission what I've done is I've put shellac on which gives me speed yeah but it kind of like pops the grain a little bit too because if you yeah. put just water-based poly on top of wood it doesn't do anything to the grain you might as well you know just put like clear liquid on it it's water white so the the the, the shellac and I may use like an amber shellac or garnet shellac on cherry is one of my favorites uh to impart color to it and a little bit of that depth to the grain. Put a couple coats of that on, which also seals the wood. And that can be done in an afternoon. And then I'll I'll go right to spray finishing, uh, which is typically a water-based poly, just right over the top of it.
0: Because you don't spray lacquer?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's because it smells too much. And I can get water-based poly pretty pretty easily. I don't have to go to the the Sherwin-Williams Pro Store to mm. get that. Uh, like a water-based lacquer, so i was using a water-based poly. I can get that anywhere. I can go down to Ace Hardware in the corner. You know, five minutes from my house, and get it. And I'll spray that, and it looks great. You just don't put like you know ten coats of it on,
1: right? Right. But
2: I can get a couple, three coats of that on in a day because it dries so fast. I can get at least two coats on in a day, and I don't, I don't, ha- I don't have my shop dedicated for a for a week waiting for oil to dry
1: his last question or part of the question was when might you turn down a job and for me i would probably turn down a job when it just doesn't bring me any joy or i just don't like it i don't have the taste for it but see i don't do it full time so i'm only doing it uh <laughs> once in a while to for a commission very rarely so it's not something that uh, you know i turn a lot of work down i don't because i don't ask get asked a lot but how about you, guy? Why would you turn down a job?
2: Typically, mainly the jobs I turn down is is building kitchens.
1: <laughs>
2: I get asked that probably once every four or five weeks. And I just won't do it. It's it. I don't have the room in my shop to do it. I'm not set up to build cabinets. Yeah, they're easy and they're they're fairly quick to do, but I just don't have the space to to put all those base cabinets and upper cabinets and all that stuff in my shop and finish it. I just, I don't have the room. Um, the other time I'll turn down a job is what I said before, when someone's asking me to do something that not a matter of bringing me joy, but I just don't want to put my name on that. I made it, you know, like a farmhouse table made out of construction grade plywood or construction grade lumber. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> 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 it's that's just not what I do. And I would, somebody asked me to do something, I was like, no, I, I,
1: I, don't want to, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I just won't do it. Sean, I know you've done a lot of work with, for family, right?
0: Yeah, I have. I'll turn a job down if I can't, if it's something, <laughs> well, I say this and then I'm gonna in the very next breath, I'm going to tell you the opposite. But if it's cabinetry, I just don't have the room. Yeah. And a- another important thing that, that helps determine if I can do it is when they need it by like the timing is very crucial yeah. to the, when they need it, then I'm like, Sorry, I do this after work and some on the weekends, I can't do it. And I'm definitely not going to uh, break my neck over getting this done. Sorry, I can't do it. You know, I say that I'll turn down uh, cabinetry jobs, but I'm getting ready to start two bookcases that are combined seven feet tall and five feet wide. So that's <laughs> going to be fun. Luckily, it's going to be two separate bookcases that are 30 inches wide, give or take, and seven feet tall each. So are you fired up about it? Well, uh, it's it, uh, maybe. <laughs> it. You know what it is? It's really a learning experience because I don't do a lot of cabinetry, like yeah. traditional plywood cabinetry for bookcases and whatnot. So it, it's interesting to me. So I'm, I'm eager to take it on. And I don't normally do stuff this large, but it's a way for me to learn.
2: Is it going to be a built-in?
0: Um, it's not going to be a built-in. It's just going to be two really large bookcases the, for my brother-in-law and sister. Cool it would nice. it would if they it would typically be look like a built-in but it's just floor standing bookcases that are going to be uh, that are going to be made to look like built-ins in a way but they're just bookcases.
1: Yeah, nice. All right, guy, I think you've got the next question.
2: This question is from Bobby and he's saying I'm fairly new to woodworking and need to upgrade my job site saw to a more robust table saw with good fence options. This is just a hobby, so I won't be running it 40 hours a week. The problem is that I don't have 220 volt near the garage, and future plans include relocating the shop to the other side of the property, so it would be a waste to pay an electrician to run a new 220 circuit to the garage. He says, I've been looking at the Powermatic PM1000, or the Grizzly G0833P hybrid saw, both can be wired for 110 and 220 and seem to have enough power for the type of woodworking I do. Uh, I did get a chance to take a look. I'm really familiar with the PM1000, and I did take a, uh, a time to look at the Grizzly 833P. So one thing I want to say in full disclosure, uh, I am sponsored by Powermatic. So just take that <laughs> for what yes, it's worth. Yes, yeah. He said both could be wired for 110 and 220. The PM1000, I do not believe, can be wired for 220. It's it's 110 only. The Grizzly can be 110 or 220. Looking at both these saws, the, the Grizzly, for the price, it was around $1,300 with shipping versus a little over $2,000 for the Powermatic at today's prices. The Grizzly looks like a really nice saw. It's three ho- or two horsepower. Uh, it has really nice dust collection, both with the shroud underneath, and it's actually got a built-in arm that goes to the guard over the blade, which is nice. Uh, it's also got a pretty cool fence. It's not your standard Biesmeyer T-style fence. It's got, it's it's aluminum, or I should say, it's a it's a tube steel fence with an aluminum extrusion. Mm. That uh, screws onto it, so you can undo it and lay it. It's like a horizontal vertical thing with your bandsaw. Bandsaw, yeah, right. yeah. And the nice thing about that is, let's say you're doing like um, tenons on the table saw. It's like the old Delta that you could back the 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 thing up,
1: yeah, and yeah. use it
2: as a stop. As a and then stop. By the time yeah. You, by the time you get to the blade, it's cleared that thing, so you don't have to worry about kickback, which is pretty cool. I like that idea. You know, between the two, if if you don't if you're just a hobbyist woodworker, I mean, I think either saw will be more than enough for you. And looking at the Grizzly, you know, I the only thing about Grizzly and I've said this before is you can't see the thing. You have to just look at pictures or rely on people on the internet to tell you it's a good saw.
0: Can't you go to one of their stores?
2: I think they only have two. They have one near South of St. Louis and one in Washington state. Right. And that's it.
0: So if you live close to that, you can maybe check one out.
2: But if you don't, you have to kind of, you know, I've bought Grizzly stuff before. I've never had an issue with it. I always thought it was, you know, you get what you pay for. And I was never disappointed with it. Yeah. So, Kui, what
1: what, what say you? I've owned a Grizzly saw and I didn't have issues with it. It's perfectly fine. If the saw fits your budget, get it. If you want a little bit, you know, higher end product, get the Powermatic. That's it. So,
0: Sean? I'm sure you guys can probably guess what I'm going to say, but I would- between those two <laughs> between those two I'm I would definitely go the grizzly and save the 1000 and put it toward a domino. I'm just I'm just joking about the domino, but that's just <laughs> me. I mean, it's got 2 horsepower, you can rewire it. It's got the over the uh, blade dust collection. It's got a lot of options. Yeah, it does. You know, that's what I would do if it were me. Is, is save the yeah. thousand and go with the Grizzly.
2: And, and, and you know the 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 whole thing with wired for one ten or two twenty. It's not going to give you the saw more power if you hook it up to two twenty. No. It's just going to draw less amperage. Yep, that's it.
1: And if your breaker can handle it, you are fine. And if your yep. uh, lines can handle it, you are fine.
2: Yeah, so you you might not want to have your saw if you if it's wired for one ten or one twenty. Actually, if you've got it wired for the for the one twenty, you don't want your dust collector on the same circuit because you'll blow the breaker.
0: Yeah, it'd be too much. Yeah, because so, it looks yeah. like the the Grizzly is 16 amps at 115. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. you could only do a 20 amp breaker.
1: Yep. Yeah. Uh,
2: I I guess the bottom line is, Bobby, you can't go wrong with either one. Yep. If you nope. want to drive a Cadillac, get the Powermatic. If you need something that's just going to work for you, and I think you know, judging from what I saw on the Grizzly in my past experience, I think that's a dynamite saw for the money. I don't mm-hmm. think you can go wrong, and it does have the, the the trunnions are not mounted to the table; they're mounted to the cabinet. Are they really? Yeah, you know that was the definition of a hybrid saw at one time. That no, I, that's
1: what I heard too. Now what are they defining it as? You
2: know, I, I had a I had a Steel City hybrid saw, and the trunnions were attached to the cabinet. I don't know what def- defines a hybrid saw anymore because they used to, you know, that used to be the thing. The trunnions were attached to the tabletop.
1: That's what I thought it was.
2: And I looked at the, I looked at the, I brought up the manual for this thing and I went all the way through it. And I found it to adjust the blade to the miter gauge or the miter slot.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: You loosen four, four bolts in the table and tap it with a mallet. Yeah. There you go. I think now they're just saying it's not a heavier base or maybe the trunnions aren't as beefy as they are, but this thing weighs
0: as much as a saw stop. Yeah. Yeah. That's 416 pounds. Shipping weight.
2: So it's probably like 30, 40 pounds less than that. So it's close to four hundred pounds. Yeah. You know, it's a beastie saw. Mm-hmm. So I say
0: go for it, man. Absolutely. I think I think I've got the the last question here, and this one's from Firelight twelve twenty six. Uh, Do you ever follow up with past customers to see how your furniture pieces have aged? I'm always trying to learn new things and get better in the craft. And a feedback loop or some kind of retrospective, Sean, as a software guy, you might appreciate that, would help to get some insight on what design or construction choices worked well, and what might need some tweaking. Maybe that's opening up Pandora's box and is ill-advised. Just curious as to your opinions. Well. I primarily sell, well, I say I sell, but make stuff for friends and family. And I do often sell items to um, extended friends and and coworkers. And I'm always curious, like when I'm over at a friend's house or uh, my sister brother-in-law's house where they have several pieces. I mean, I'm always asking and looking and touching uh, just to see how it's held up, to see how the joinery is held up. I'm always opening the drawers and whatnot. Now, that may not be a, a... something that someone at a shop, a cabinet shop would do, um, as obviously, depending on the volume, they probably wouldn't have time, but as a, uh, night and weekend woodworker that sells to friends and family and, and, and coworkers and stuff, I'm extremely curious about that just to, to see what I might've screwed up. Uh, there's a table that I built for my parents a long time ago, probably five, six years ago that the, the glue joint on the tabletop failed. There's a gap I'm learning from that and know that, you know, maybe I didn't put enough glue on there. Maybe the, the the edge joining wasn't wasn't perfect. And, you know, it's just something that you always learn from these mistakes and try to do better. Guy, what about you? Do you ever follow up on your old projects?
1: Yes yeah.
2: and no. It depends. It really depends. I mean, so most of my customers are, are long gone, not long gone in the permanent <laughs> sense, but just, you know, I've, I've fallen out of touch with them. Because uh, that was quite a long time ago. I don't do many commissions anymore. So most of the stuff I'm making is for family and friends. And I, I still have a lot of furniture in my house. And I still have some of the stuff I built, you know, over 20 years ago, sometimes 30 years ago. And I look at it and I go, oh, my God, I was so bad. <laughs> I, look at stuff, I look at stuff I did a week ago and go, oh, my God, I suck. Yeah, that's exactly, you know, I, I look at that stuff. if I If I come in contact with something that I've built in the past, you know, years ago or whatever, I look it over with a fine-tooth comb. I look to see if joints have separated, if the finish is still good, things like that, because it's important. You want to know if if your craftsmanship is improving, but what works and what didn't work. You know, like, oh, I, I remember building this piece and I did this, and okay, I, I guess I got to remember not to do that anymore. Right. You know, I think it's helpful to look at stuff that you've built in the past. wait
1: Yeah, I mean, I have never, except now, taken on pieces for commission. You know, I've set a chairs that I'm doing and dining table first commission that I've ever done. Everything else has been gifts or pieces for myself. And so I'm sitting at a desk that I built and every time I sit at the desk, I open every single drawer just to make sure that they are perfect. And um, I look around and I see the little mistakes and I always note them and I remember what I did.
0: That's how we learn.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I don't beat myself up over it. Definitely not. But I just, I just look and I was like, okay, I see what I did.
2: Yeah. Most of those mistakes and stuff that you're saying, you know, the, the person that owns it Mm -hmm. doesn't know it's there. Only, you know, it's there only, only we being the, the OCD people we are notice that stuff. Every time I I just I just dropped off that bookcase I just built to the customer, and all I'm looking at, I'm going, "My God, it's awful! It's horrible!" All I see are the little tiny—I mean, the tiniest mistakes, which are really nothing. The people I dropped it off to—they were, "Oh my God, it's beautiful! It's wonderful!" They didn't see any of that stuff.
0: We, as the builders of these projects, understand in the perfect world what they should look like, so we set the bar too high. In reality, the, the normal person that has you know, had no idea that buys stuff from Ikea and, and other places like that have no clue that, that that dovetail is supposed to be like that or the drawer is supposed to be just perfect. Yeah. They don't know. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: I, you know, I don't see anything wrong in striving for perfection in your work. Sometimes it'll, it'll take you longer to get there. And my work is far from perfect. I mean, really far from perfect,
1: mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> but, uh, there's nothing wrong with trying to get there. And, you know, every time I do something, you know, i, I learn on every project mm-hmm. I do. So.
0: Right. Absolutely. Well, I think that'll wrap it up. And finally, we are going to recommend some folks to follow on social media. We. Who do you have for us this episode? I've got Brian Robertson Furniture. It's... Oh no way!
1: I did literally you choose him have... too?
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: oh man! Literally He's... have
0: that written in front of me.
1: Oh man. Well, uh, I'll just say one thing that I really like about him. I don't know if he does this full time or not. I don't know either. What's his
2: What's his handle on Instagram?
1: Brian Robertson underscore Furniture.
0: Uh, yeah. He is a furniture designer out of New Albany, Indiana. He really takes on, you know, some really complex projects. He just finished a mahogany dresser that is just gorgeous. He, he utilizes some complex joinery, uh, angled mortise and tenons. And mm-hmm. he just it, it's an inspirational feed and it <laughs> it's just amazing. I just texted you guys a picture of it. I apologize for that during the episode, but I yeah. literally had him picked out to talk about as well. But yeah, he's he's definitely, and he also puts his builds on YouTube. So if you want to follow right. along, he does okay. that as well. Yeah, yeah New Albany is uh, right across the river from um, Louisville. You know, he he DM'd me the other day and uh, and said, you know, uh, I'm in New Albany. We're like an hour and some change away from each other. Yeah, you should go visit him sometime. Yeah, you should stop by too, guy.
2: Yeah, it's not that far.
0: We could all meet up. Sean, who do you have? <laughs> Brian Robertson. furniture. <for laughs> <interesting. laughs>
1: guy who do you have <laughs>
2: i've got a uh, a guy from canada his name is adrian ferrazuti and it's ferrazuti furniture f-e-r-r-a-z-z-u-t-t-i furniture ferrazuti furniture adrian is a professional furniture maker and like i said out of canada and he actually i first heard of him when he did a um, video workshop for fine woodworking magazine And he also does classes here at Mark Adams School. But anyways, he does a lot of studio furniture. In other words, very high-end, eclectic, artsy pieces. Tons of bent laminations, tons of veneer work, very complicated stuff that this guy does. And it's just fantastic. He just started making some wooden hand planes, too, that he's selling. I'd like to really get my hands on one if I had any money. Anyways, you should really check out Adrian's feed. He does a lot of crazy ass stuff and uh, he's really good, man. I wish I had a quarter of his talent. Hmm. So, so after the Brian Robertson debacle, Sean, did you think of anybody else that you want to talk about?
0: Yeah, I've got a backup and it's going to be Eric from the poplar shop. I'm going to give him a shout out. He uh, recently built some cabinets for a family member and they were great to follow along. It shows you his process. He also does an excellent job of showing you shop tips and giving you uh, reviews of some of the products that he uses. Definitely worth checking out the poplar shop. All one word, Eric. Cool dude. Yeah. Eric's awesome. All right. I'll think that will do it for this show. Please remember the podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have a woodworking question you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or you can DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. We would also like to thank everyone who left to say five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. You can reach me at simplecove.com and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Where can you be found, Hui? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All my links to my social, social
1: media are on my webpage. Guy, how do we find you?
2: Guyswoodshop.com.
1: Awesome. Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a couple of weeks. All right. Take care, guys. See you later.